Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult. This podcast is brought to you by PrimeMed. Esther is a 52-year-old female who tells us that she had a GI bug a few months ago, and she's continuing to have abdominal pain. She's got some fluctuating patterns of constipation and loose stool. She tells you that she thought some of this was due to stress, as she's going through a lot at work right now. Esther asks if there's anything else that she can do or anything that we should check, because sometimes her symptoms are very painful. And she's already tried modifying her diet. She also wonders, is she have some sort of infection or a parasite? You note that there's no change in her weight, and you suspect she has irritable bowel syndrome. Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today is Dr. Marion Montague, Assistant Visiting Professor at Fitchburg State and Term Lecturer at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. Good morning, Marion. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Doing great, thanks. And like every healthcare professional, I went through my own time of irritable bowel syndrome. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what is irritable bowel syndrome and who does it affect most commonly? When you hear Esther's story, it makes me think right away, does she have IBS? So irritable bowel syndrome is a chronic condition. It is described as abdominal pain with associating bowel dysfunction. And, you know, sometimes it presents with abdominal bloating, diarrhea, constipation, or, or both. It's found to be in about 10 to 15% of adult population in the United States and has ba- found to be to affect more middle-aged women. And so I find that interesting. You know, we see Esther's story, and she is a middle-aged female, and it makes me think, does she have IBS? So as a clinician, we always like to look for different criteria to rule in or rule out disease processes. And so one that can be used is the Rome criteria. And these criteria include belly pain, discomfort, averaging at least one day a week in the last three months. This must also occur with at least two of the following symptoms, pain and discomfort related to defecation, a change in the frequency of defecation, or a change in stool consistency. And so I think it's important as a clinician when we have a patient like Esther come into the office that we rule this out or rule it in. And I like to remind us of the different types. And it helps us narrow down treatment down the line. So we have IBS that can be divided into four types based on the symptoms, constipation predominant, diarrhea predominant, or mixed or unclassified. Great. Um, When we think of irritable bowel syndrome, there's also some triggers that occur that, that set it off. And you've described a little bit, but maybe go into a little bit more detail about what, what can trigger it and what are some of the signs and symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome? So when we look at our case with Esther, what triggered me some th- things that stood out was the GI bug. So acute gastroenteritis can be a trigger for IBS as well as increased stress. So that's why when you mentioned as a healthcare profession experiencing IBS, we all have increased stress at times, right? So we look at also additional 
risk factors um, can be abuse, both physical and sexual, um, age greater than 50, female, PTSD, and family history. So some key symptoms that we are seeing is abdominal pain, fluctuating bowel habits, and abdominal bloating. Uh, I think it's very interesting. I didn't realize that there was an age and gender uh, were both risk factors. I thought it was something predominantly of younger people. Um, let's talk about treating Esther because she sounds pretty uncomfortable. I agree. So when we think about this, she's already mentioned she's tried some lifestyle modifications. So I would spend time understanding what has worked and what hasn't worked for her. When we specifically look at diet in individuals with IBS, we think about avoiding certain um, short-chain carbohydrates, as well as having patients do a food diary to see what foods may be irritants to them or not. Additionally, I like to look to treat the specific symptoms first, as a first line, with if it's diarrhea, use anti-diarrheal. If it's constipation, we look at using laxatives. And for pain, we can use some antispasmatics that have been successful in helping. But in her case, we might need to look a little deeper because she's already tried some things. So what can we consider next? So there's been a lot of studies recently talking about um, the use of amitriptyline. And I recently read a great paper by Fort et al. The study talked about specifically amitriptyline in low dose. So that's looking at a dose between 10 and 30 milligrams as a great option for second line treatment for patients who have had ineffective results with the first line therapies. It's been found that patients have had reduced symptoms as well as there's also noted increased response between three and six months of therapy. So that's very important to realize. So at six months, the subjective global assessment score of IBS of some considerable or complete relief favored amitriptyline over placebo. So 61% versus 45%, AAR 16%, and NT about six. Yeah, that's that. That's quite remarkable. I, I've used low-dose amitriptyline for IBS before. I was always worried, oh, it's going to make the constipation worse. But that that's pretty incredible. The other interesting thing is that 45% of people got better on placebo. So there's some neurologic and or psychiatric component to IBS that I think we're kind of missing. What else can we do to help Esther? So in Esther's case, I would offer her a trial of amitriptyline 10 milligrams and have her titrate it up over a few weeks. I would also talk to her about her lifestyle and what her different habits are so I could really dig into like what is triggering her stress because it's important that we also modify those other risks and we can offer her supports with behavioral health, treating the anxiety and depression if that's in her situation. But I also would encourage her, as the study has shown, it's the symptoms are showing relief at that six months of time. So I would really encourage her to stick it out, try it for at least six months, see if she's noticed a difference. And one tip I use with patients is I tell them to get one of those 12-month calendars. And especially with stress and anxiety, I talk to them about putting a smiley face or a sad face. And I talk to them about how, over time, I want to see more smiley faces and sad, than sad faces. And just that's just a little concrete tool that can be utilized. 
I think that's a great idea. That's awesome. And it's a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy. You get concrete, overt evidence that things are getting better. Marianne, very good data for a very common problem. Thank you so much. Thank you. Practice pointer. The use of a tricyclic antidepressant such as amitriptyline, has showed significant benefits in managing the symptoms of IBS, especially in patients whose first-line therapy has been ineffective. Join us next time when we talk about the most recent data on time-restricted eating patterns and its beneficial effects in type 2 diabetes. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by Primed. To claim CME credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, follow the link in the description. To stay up to date on the most recent clinical research and news, please subscribe to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine and be sure to check out primed.com for additional CME content.